today through Matthew's Gospel. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, so if you want to go ahead and be turning there, Matthew is the first of four biographies of Jesus, if you will. Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12 is what we'll be looking at. Uh, and you may notice when, as you turn there that the, the subtitle above that passage, above Matthew chapter 5, says the, the Sermon on the Mount. This is the longest section of Jesus' teaching uh, that we have. Uh, Jesus doesn't call it the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, St. Augustine called it that, and we've called it that for 1,600 years since him. And the reason we call it that is because it happens on a mountain. Um, now, we could do an entire series on the Sermon on the Mount, but our goal is to make it through Matthew's Gospel, and so that neither one of us gives up, we're not going to do that. Um, but if you are interested in digging deeper, um, John Stott, has, he's, a, he's a British pastor, uh, he has a short book on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, if you're in for something a little bit more thorough, Martin Lloyd-Jones has this book. It's two volumes condensed into one, so you get all 600 pages in just one heavy book. Um, studies in the Sermon on the Mount. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, it's a good book. Well worth, uh, well worth your time if you want to dig a little bit deeper. Um, Last week, we saw Jesus, uh, we heard Jesus rather, announce the arrival of God's kingdom. And what we said is that God's kingdom is where God's people are living under God's rule and blessing. When you live under God's rule and blessing, you are living in God's kingdom. For the next few weeks, what we're going to listen to is Jesus teach us about what that looks like. What does living in God's kingdom look like? That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Jesus is describing what human life looks like as it comes under the gracious rule of God. So let's give our attention to God's word. Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you 
and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. While grass withers and flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help. Lord, as uh, we consider not just these words, but your words spoken uh, over the next several weeks in this sermon, God, I pray that you would help us to, to understand them and that you would apply them to our hearts. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I recently heard a leader say, say this, culture in the hall beats vision on the wall. Culture in the hall beats vision on the wall. I'm, I'm something of a, of a leadership, like I'm just kind of fascinated in general by books on leadership and stuff like that. And so I was listening to this podcast and I heard this gentleman say this. Um, but do you understand, do you understand what he's saying? Uh, you know, we, we love vision statements. Uh, our, our businesses have them, churches have them, schools have them, right? And, and really, that is, that's just an expression of what a particular organization wants to see happen, right? And so they'll, we'll usually put it on a poster and put it on the wall. But what this guy was saying is, if your culture doesn't match your stated vision, it won't work. Another way to put it is who you are, what you value, how you behave, that will always trump vision. Culture will always win out over vision. So we can say whatever we like, but if we don't, if, if the culture of, of our organization or family doesn't match it, then it won't happen. Our values determine how we behave, how we live. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, let's say you and I are just talking about future goals, future dreams, what we want to see happen. And I say, man, I, I really want to take my family camping. I mean, like, not camper camping, real camping. Like backpacking, hiking through the woods, staying in a tent, you know, cooking your food over a stove this big, like, or over a fire. Like, I want to do that. And you, amen, okay, there we go. Somebody else does too. Uh, and you say, okay. So you guys must really like being out in nature and roughing it, huh? And I say, no, not at all. And you say, um, okay, well, what are some of the things that you value? What do you, what do you like? And I say, comfort. Right, particularly I like, I like sleeping comfortably. I got like the sleep number bed, I got the special pillow, I got the weighted blanket, I got a sound machine. I mean, conditions have to be just right for me to feel comfortable so that I can sleep. Now, what would you tell me about my vision to go camping based on my culture? Probably shouldn't do that. Right, value, what I value and what I envision are two very different things. And if I'm going to fulfill this vision, I'm going to have to change what I value, right? We have to change culture before we change vision. Now, 
What does that have to do with today's passage? We should remember that this sermon is Jesus' description of kingdom life, what life looks like as you come under God's gracious rule. And isn't it interesting that he begins his sermon by describing what the people of the kingdom are like? He describes their qualities, their value. We might say he des- he's describing the culture of the kingdom. Historically, these have been called the Beatitudes. That word comes from the Latin word to bless. Uh, and so what we could say is that this passage that we, that we just read is all about the blessed life. And so what we're going to do today, really we could break down each one of these into its own sermon and that would take a long time. And there's a lot of fruit in doing that. What we're going to do today is just cover a few. We're going to aim to cover the first four. So I'm going to look at verses 1 through 6 today, and then we'll cover verses 7 through 12 next week. Um, The first thing I want you to notice, again, he's describing Christians. He's describing kingdom people. Notice uh, who it is that Jesus calls to himself, right? The crowds are pressing in, and so what does he do? He goes up onto the mountain, and he calls his disciples to himself. So he calls the people who have decided to follow him and to pattern their lives after him. And he, so he begins des- describing what their lives should begin to look like. Now, there's a parallel here. If you know the story of the Bible, you know that this is not the first time. A leader has gone up on a mountain and told God's people how to live. Talking about Moses. Right, what did Moses do? You know, when we think about the Exodus, what do we usually think about? We think about the plagues. We think about the Passover. We think about the Red Sea. But all of those events cover like not even the first third of the book. Most of the time of the Exodus is actually spent at Mount Sinai. And what's happening at Mount Sinai? God is telling his people... How to live. He's describing for them what life in his kingdom looks like. So here's Jesus being the new Moses, the new prophet, telling God's people what it looks like to live in the kingdom. And the first thing we need to talk about is this word blessed. And so we'll talk about the word blessed, and then we're going to talk about uh, each of the other, uh, at least the first couple of, uh, of Beatitudes, values underneath that. So the first thing... We need to say is that Christians are blessed. Now, when you hear that word, what comes to mind? Facebook. Okay. That's, yeah, I usually have the exact opposite response to <laughs> That's right. Oh, it's a ha- hashtag blessed. Okay. There we go. There we go. I think of like bless it, which I don't, I'm not even 100% sure what that means. But, um, but yeah, usually, right? Just go ahead and conjure in your mind when you hear that word blessed or the blessed life, what that means. Now, the word itself can actually mean, can be translated happy. Um, And isn't that really what we're all pursuing? In fact, doesn't the Declaration of Independence even tell us that one of the three unalienable rights that God bestows upon us, there's life, liberty, and the pursuit of Happiness. 
The question is, how's that pursuit going for you? For all of the happiness that you are pursuing, are you actually finding it? Are we even looking in the right places? Jesus here is describing, in one sense, a happy life. But it's a little bit deeper than that. We often think of happiness in a very, uh, in a very surfacey way. We often think of maybe a personal pursuit of satisfaction. What, it is, what is it that makes me smile? What makes me happy? That feeling. But Jesus here is not describing our perspective. He's describing God's perspective. Uh, he's not describing what we feel like. Rather, he's describing what God thinks of us. To be blessed is to have God's smile. What kind of person... So it's not about our smile. It's about God's smile. What kind of person does God's smile rest upon? And so as we study these verses over the next couple of weeks, I want you to ask yourself, where am I pursuing happiness? What sort of happiness am I looking for? What is my heart set on? Only then, and as we, as we listen to the words of Jesus, will we begin to figure out what it means to be blessed. To be blessed is to have the smile of God. And that's what Jesus describes here. Jesus lists eight qualities. We're going to deal with the first four, hopefully, today. Uh, and this really deals with our, these first four deal with our attitude, our relationship to God. And so uh, Christians are blessed. We've talked about that. Now let's look at verse 3. Jesus says that Christians are humble. Actually, what Jesus says is, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, one of the first things we need to notice about these descriptions of a blessed person is how upside down they are. Right? As I read those descriptions of what it looks like to be blessed, how often did you think, I don't know about that, Jesus. That doesn't seem like a very blessed condition to me. Right? Poor in spirit, mourn, persecuted. Um, like if I'm, if I'm lining up values, if I'm lining up and saying like, okay, this is what the blessed life looks like, and then Jesus speaks, I'm like, nope, that's the opposite. Jesus' values seem to be contrary to our own, which shows us that what we usually value is the opposite of what God values. But when Jesus says poor in spirit, what does he mean? He's talking about our spiritual poverty. Not our physical poverty, not our material poverty, but our spiritual poverty. Our spiritual need. He's saying that the blessed person is the one who understands just how needy he is before God. As the old hymn says, uh, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That's poor in spirit. Now, what do we usually think it looks like to be blessed in this regard? 
Uh, we often envision the blessed person as somebody who's self-assured, very confident in themselves. It was Ben Franklin quoting a, an older French philosopher, but Ben Franklin would say in Poor Richard's Almanac, God helps those who what? Help themselves. That's, by the way, not in the Bible. Ben Franklin said that, not Jesus. All right? Uh, in fact, what the Bible tells us, what Jesus says, is that God blesses those who cannot help themselves. So in order first to be smiled upon by God, you need to realize that you bring nothing to the table. That all you bring is your need, all you bring is your sin. Now, Kevin, are you saying that I need to be down on myself all the time? Kind of dour and sour and grumpy? No. Uh, Self-pity is not humility. Self-pity really is just another form of pride. Because you're still at the center of your own universe. Right? C.S. Lewis says this, Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That's a real challenge, right? Pride is always evaluating how I stack up against others. If I stack up against others pretty well, I can be self-assured and confident. If I'm always looking at other people and I, and I'm, and I see that I'm lower than others, then it's self-pity. But pride rests at the heart of both because I'm using myself as kind of the gauge, right? I'm seeing how I stack up. To be poor in spirit uses a different measure altogether. To be poor in spirit is to see how you stack up before, not other people, but before a holy God. And when you do that, that always leads you to a right view of yourself. It should lead you to humility, poor in spirit. And what is the blessing that he gives to those who are poor in spirit? He says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom, I want you to hear this, the kingdom belongs to people who do not deserve it. And so right here at the very beginning of this sermon on how to live, Jesus sounds the note of grace. He gives the kingdom to those who know they don't deserve it. Christians are humble. Christians grieve over sin. That's what I think Jesus means when he says in verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn. Now John Stott says, you could translate this, Happy are the unhappy. Just to bring out the point. But what kind of mourning are we talking about? What kind of grief is Jesus describing? Uh, I want you to notice as we go through these that all of these beatitudes, all of these qualities chain together. They're connected to each other. They even build on one another. And so this mourning follows being poor in spirit. So if I'm poor in spirit, if I understand my condition before a holy God, then what will that lead me to do? Mourn. I will mourn over my sin. I will be grieved when I fall short of God's glory. 
Again, let's contrast that to how we often think. We think to be blessed, to be happy, means you wear a constant grin. You're always jovial, upbeat. Uh, it's the t-shirt that says, good vibes only, please. Right? Don't, don't bring any of your bad energy around here. Don't want it. But what are we really doing? We're just... It's, it's, like you, it's like you have a huge gaping hole in your wall and you're just kind of trying to like put a piece of paper, like you tape a piece of paper over the sheetrock and you just paint it and pretend it's not there. Right? Jesus says no, to be blessed means to mourn, means to grieve, means to understand who you are and to be grieved by that. Now, does that mean that I go around moping all the time? Is Jesus telling me basically to be Eeyore here? Woe is me. Right? No, I don't think so. Once again, I think Jesus is telling us where to find true joy. Right? Surface happiness never really deals with the problems of life. Again, it's like putting a paper over a hole in your sheetrock and painting it. Uh, It never really deals with the problems of life, and so it never really finds true happiness. We just kind of flit around from one thing to the next. We ignore what's wrong deep down, and we try to quench our thirst in several unsatisfying ways. But Jesus is saying that the repentant person is the truly happy person. Because that person, because what happens on the other side of repentance, on the other side of repentance? What happened this morning, right? Uh, We saw that vision in Isaiah 6. God shows himself to Isaiah, or at least as much as Isaiah can handle. And what is Isaiah's response? Woe is me. Here he is, a prophet, a person who speaks for God, and he says, all of a sudden he realizes, oh, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I'm surrounded by people of unclean lips. I am undone. I am lost. And then what does God say? He brings a a coal from the altar where sacrifices were offered and he touches Isaiah's lips with it. And he says, your sins are forgiven. When you understand the depth of your sin and then you understand that God has forgiven you by his free grace, what happens in your heart? Joy. That's why those who mourn really are the blessed ones. Because we don't ignore the hole in the wall. We, sh- we show the hole in the wall to our God, and he fixes it, and then we rejoice. Blessed are those who mourn. Christians grieve over your sin. It's the, it's the story of the woman in Luke chapter 7. One of my favorite stories. Jesus is having dinner At the home of a Pharisee, a religious leader. And this woman who is well known in town for her sin. She's got a reputation. She barges into the dinner party. And she walks up to Jesus' feet. Jesus would be reclining at table so his feet would be behind him. And she begins weeping. Washing his feet with her tears. And then taking her hair, letting her hair down, which would have been unheard of. In Jewish culture. And, 
and drying his feet with her hair. And what does Jesus tell her? Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus tells us that the blessing for those who mourn is that they will be comforted. That happens in the present, as it did for that woman. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. But it will also happen in the future. When Jesus wipes away every tear from our eyes. And there will be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain, nor sin, nor death anymore. They will be comforted. Christians grieve over sin. And they will be comforted. Next, Christians are gentle. This one's hard for us. Jesus says, blessed are the meek. And that word is hard for us to, to define, uh, partially because when we hear the word meek, we assume weak. But Jesus uses this same word, meek, to describe himself in Matthew chapter 11. He, calls him, he says, I am gentle. He, he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. And he says, because I am gentle, meek, and lowly in heart. Now, we cannot look at Jesus and say that he is weak. So meek and weak must be two different things. Jesus is not weak. He is not slow to call out those who oppose him. And he often uses strong language when he does. But he is a man whose strength is under control. He is no bull in a china shop. He is strong and he is kind. That is how Jesus shows his meekness. For those who come to him needy, he gladly receives them. It's like what Mr. Bieber says about Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. When Susan says, when they're talking about this lion, and Susan says, A lion? I hope he's safe. And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Heavens no, he's not safe, but he's good. That's meekness. Strength under control. And again, you see how these values work together, right? When we see our true need of help, we become humble. As we become humble, we mourn our sin. And then when we, when we have a true sense of who we really are before God, we are not bossy and overbearing. We are gentle. Now that will look different at different times, but we should always bear in mind the meekness of Jesus, who had every right to swing the club, but did not. In fact, allowed the club to be swung at himself. That's what meekness looks like. And what is the blessing? Jesus says they will inherit the earth. We often think it's the opposite. In fact, sometimes it often looks like the opposite, right? That it's the, it's the pushers and shovers, it's the bullies who get their way. But Jesus says it will not always be so. It will not be the pushers and shovers and bullies who inherit the earth. It will be the meek. Those who trusted me. And then finally, Christians seek righteousness. 
The blessed person is the person who has a true spiritual hunger and thirst for God. That their driving passion and ambition is to know God and to develop that inner righteousness. That to see their lives become more and more holy, become more and more righteous, to be changed from the inside out. Paul's words in Philippians 3, I think, are the best summary. He writes this, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's a lot of words, but I want you to hear in that Paul's heart more than anything he wants to know jesus and he wants to know his righteousness it's what it's what drives him it's his hunger and it's his thirst now as we close up and you hear that description of what the christian is what the the citizen of the kingdom should look like particularly in his attitude towards god how do you feel Do you see yourself in these values? There's really two ways you can approach this. You can see these values and you can say, nope, I don't want anything to do with that. I do not. I don't look like that and I don't want to look like that. And to you, Jesus would say, then you will not experience the blessings of God. You will not experience God's smile. But maybe you look at this and you go, I don't even have a chance. I would love for this to be true about me. But it's so far from being true about me. To you, Jesus would say, you're in exactly the right place. Remember the very first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. These values, this culture, this, this does not describe anybody naturally. Now, you may hear some of these things, or you may think of a person, you know, like a meek person, saying, oh, well, they kind of have that tendency. No, no, no. This does not describe the natural temperament of any human being. This describes a person who has been renovated by the grace of God. And in that sense, when your heart has been made new and you say, I want to be that, you are on the right track. This is what we are aiming for. This is the direction we ought to want to go. And the way that we receive that is first by coming to him. By receiving his grace and mercy.
as we do that, we will be transformed to look like this. As he brings us into his kingdom, he also transforms and renews us. There's so much more we could say, and we'll say more about it next week. Let me close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, I'm so glad that you receive the poor in spirit. Because no one else could ever come. Indeed, no one else would. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see where we fall short of this description. Would you show us where our values do not line up with your values, where our personal culture or the culture we live in, our family's culture, doesn't line up with the kingdom culture? And would you change us from the inside out? Make us poor in spirit. Show us what we need to mourn. Help us to be meek and give us a hunger and thirst for your righteousness. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing.